for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Perspective with Jesse Zerowell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome to Perspective. I'm Jesse Zerwell, your host for the hour. I am flying solo once again today for the second leg of a monologue, which I began yesterday. And I want to pick up right where I left off with the UAE. And as reported by Reuters, its plans to maintain ties with Israel despite Gaza outcry, sources say. And I want to home in on this because we've heard a lot of language coming from the UAE and affiliated parties, particularly at the UN, with regard to support, tepid support for the Palestinians. And despite the words, there's no action. There's no action coming from anybody, really, no substantial action. One would think the UAE would care more about its Arab brothers and sisters, but alas, it does not. And there are reasons for that. And we can start looking at the reasons which go quite deep by looking at the ties the UAE has with Israel. So to dig into this Reuters article, which I started toward the end of yesterday's program, I will start from the very beginning. United Arab Emirates plan to maintain diplomatic ties with Israel despite international outcry over the mounting toll of the war in Gaza in hopes to have some moderating influence over the Israeli campaign while safeguarding its own interests, according to four sources familiar with UAE government policy. I'll add that this was published on the 11th of this month, this past Saturday and Reuters claims it as an exclusive. Abu Dhabi became the most prominent Arab nation to establish diplomatic ties with Israel in 30 years under the US-brokered Abraham Accords in 2020. That paved the way for other Arab states to forge their own ties with Israel by breaking a taboo on normalizing relations without the creation of a Palestinian state. The mounting death toll from Israel's invasion of the Gaza Strip launched in retaliation for cross-border attacks on October 7 by the Hamas militant group that governs the enclave have stirred outrage in Arab capitals. That is an understatement. The people of many, if not all, Arab countries are extremely upset by the ongoing genocide in Gaza and in the occupied West Bank, which is not receiving anywhere near enough attention. And they are the Arab people in Arab capitals and throughout those Arab countries are extremely upset with their government's response or pathetic lack thereof 
to the ongoing genocide against Palestine. And the protests can be seen on every major outlet, far and wide. They've been covered by many in alternative media. And the people aren't having it, but their leaders, like the sheikhs in the UAE, dither. And as I'm getting into, one of the reasons for that is close ties, cooperation with the Zionist occupation entity, Israel. UAE President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Tayan spoke last month with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. UAE officials have publicly condemned Israel's actions and repeatedly called for an end to the violence. In response to a request for comment for this story, an Emirati official said the UAE's immediate priority was to secure a ceasefire and to open up humanitarian corridors. That call for a ceasefire and the opening up of humanitarian corridors is, I believe, I think something that very much needs to happen. But the overwhelming focus on the immediate here without any focus or any substantial focus on what comes after in terms of ending the occupation, in terms of ending apartheid carried out by Israel in terms of addressing the right of return that was made a right after the Nakba or catastrophe or ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948 when Israel was created. The lack of discourse, serious discourse surrounding that replaced and set instead by hollow calls for a two-state solution is quite worrying, to say the least. And as I stated yesterday, it's very easy for the Emiratis, for the Chinese, for the Russians, for the US, for the UK, who are also calling for a two-state solution, although the US is cannot countenance a ceasefire and talks about tactical pauses, tactical humanitarian pauses, this very denuded language, which is essentially a pause to let in barely any help for Palestinians who are being genocided. And then once the pause is over, the genocide in terms of bombing, in terms of shelling, in terms of snipers, etc., continues. So it's very easy to say these things and to not do anything about them and to not have to do anything about them. And the UAE is a very big guilty party in this context. The Gulf Arab power, backed by its oil wealth, wields significant influence in regional affairs. It also serves as a security partner of the United States, hosting American forces. As well as speaking to Israel, the UAE has worked to moderate public positions taken by Arab states so that once the war ends, there is the possibility of a return to a broad dialogue 
said the four sources who asked not to be identified because of the sensitivity of the matter. So in a very vague way, what that paragraph is saying is that apparently the UAE is working to moderate, tamp down the public positions taken by Arab states with regard to the genocide on Palestine. So that once the war ends, and this is the framing of Reuters as if what we're witnessing now began on October 7. So that once the war ends, then we can go back to the Abraham Accords, which are not about peace. They're about economic development and domination and empire building in the vein of the fourth industrial revolution, in the vein of things like the metaverse, Dubai's metaverse strategy, Israel has its own metaverse strategy, Saudi is very big into this. And I think this is the, the prime intersection of these actors, this fourth industrial revolution development. And a lot of money has been invested in the UAE, in Israel and Saudi for vast, massive projects in this regard. And the UAE, Israel, Saudi, and other parties are not willing to give this up. They're not even going to consider giving this up. So this is a part, in part, the UAE trying to give a token gesture, make a token gesture toward the Palestinians, but with a heavy eye on preserving its fourth industrial revolution development. And the fourth industrial revolution here is no hyperbole, it's no insertion on my part. The UAE hosts one of the world's centers, official centers for the fourth industrial revolution. And again, if you take a look at their metaverse strategy, the Dubai metaverse strategy, if you take a look at their so-called ministry of possibilities, you will see how heavily invested they are in this, how much foreign capital inflow they've received. They're not going to give that up. They have their huge part in a new digital metaverse empire to build, and they are going full steam ahead with that. What's happening to the Palestinians, to them, and I'm talking about the leaders, the power structure of the UAE, is an inconvenience at most. Sheikh Mohammed met in Abu Dhabi on Thursday, this past Thursday, with Qatar's Amir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani to discuss calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire amid Qatari brokered talks for the release of a limited number of hostages in return for a break in the fighting. Quote, the UAE and Qatar stand firm in urging the need 
to advance de-escalation efforts and secure a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace in the region, unquote, Sheikh Mohammed said on social media after their discussions. So two things here. Qatar is heavily involved. It has a line to both the U.S. and to Hamas and also to Israel through the Mossad. The meeting that took place recently, if I'm not mistaken, was one that included Israel's Mossad. It included indirect communication with Hamas, and it included the CIA head, William Burns. So as Issa Blumi and I have pointed out many times, Qatar does not get that much attention in the context, the huge context of what I'm talking about here, but it is an actor to whom we should pay more attention and realize too that when it comes to UN agendas, UN fourth industrial revolution agendas, Qatar is very much on board with those. Just as an example, going back to, I believe it was March of this year, but let me pull up the source to get it correct. The World Health Organization site is being a pain as per usual. In any case, it's not coming up, but Doha hosted an event under the auspices of the UN, I believe it was, the World Health Organization, of course, is a part of the UN. And Doha is very much in bed with this fourth industrial revolution development as well, all of which is to say we need to pay more attention to Qatar. And just because they're making these moves, which are really piecemeal moves, does not mean they are the good guys. Despite closer economic and security ties with Israel forged over the past three years, Abu Dhabi has had little apparent success in reining in the Gaza offensive, which has led to the death of more than 11,000 people, according to Palestinian officials. Hamas killed around 1,200 people in its surprise attack on Israel, and some 240 hostages were taken, Israeli authorities have said. A few things I want to point out here. The death toll of the people in Gaza or the death toll cited here of more than 11,000 is no longer able to be updated because the entire health infrastructure of Gaza has collapsed. There is now a full-on siege of Al-Shifa Hospital, where there are premature babies who have no access to incubators and no access to oxygen because the Zionist occupation forces attacked the hospital, specifically targeting the oxygen provisions for these babies, and they no longer have proper oxygen supply 
the last report I checked in on said that of the 39 that were at risk, three have died. Another report said five have died. So somewhere between three and five, one is too many. And there's a risk that all of these premature babies, these neonates will die in the next few days, if not sooner. And this was, this is an, a deliberate, this is a deliberate attempt and a deliberate attempt by the Zionist occupation forces to kill these babies while raiding the hospital, while demanding that everybody there must leave, must move south to a so-called safe zone that is still being bombed. Another thing I want to point out here with this death toll is that it does not include the death toll that is rapidly mounting in the occupied West Bank, where very violent raids by Zionist occupation forces, also by settlers, colonists, Zionist colonists have been massively intensified since October 7. And almost 200 Palestinians have been killed just since October 7. To put that into context, before October 7, the year of 2023 was considered the most violent, the most bloodiest, the bloodiest, the most death-filled year in the occupied West Bank in history. And that included approximately 230 Palestinians killed in a little over a month, we're almost at that number again. And these raids include death by shooting, death by drone strike. They include mass detentions, people being held without charge, people being tortured. I spoke to one of these individuals, Isa Amro, who is a nonviolent Palestinian activist based in Hebron on October 7th, October 8th, thereabouts. He was detained by the Zionist occupation forces. And as he relayed to me on this program, he was tortured by them before being released and then before being expelled from his home for hosting both an Australian journalist and an Israeli human rights activist. So when we hear this 11,000 number, and it's well over 11,000 now, according to the Palestinian health ministry, and yes, a lot of disgusting doubt has been cast purposely so on these numbers, but it should be pointed out that the US, the UN, Many other entities have relied on these numbers in the past unquestioningly or almost unquestioningly, if not completely unquestioningly. But now they're being called into question because the death toll is most likely higher than that, considering all of the people who are still buried under the rubble of Gaza and have not been 
yet removed or identified. And so this idea has to be implanted in the public consciousness that, well, we can't really trust these numbers. And what that serves to do is it serves to tamp down on the genocidal impact of the operation that Israel has been carrying out. So yes, we hear these numbers, but we don't know if it's really that bad. It is really that bad. It's worse than that bad. Another thing I want to point out with this paragraph, Hamas killed around 1,200 people in its surprise attack on Israel and some 240 hostages were taken, Israeli authorities have said. Now, for quite some time, it was 1,405 people who'd been taken. The Israeli authorities recently downgraded that to 1,200. And there's no question from the usual suspects about this downgrade, about the inability to trust the numbers that the Zionist occupation entity is putting out there. But the numbers have officially been downgraded. And what's not mentioned is that a large number of these 1,200 people included soldiers, military targets, and also what is not mentioned are reports that have come out from the likes of Electronic Intifada and the Gray Zone showing using Hebrew language media sources like Haaretz, for example, that when the Hamas and other Palestinian factions and Palestinian civilians prison break happened on October 7, that the Israeli occupation forces did not know how to respond and went berserk following the Hannibal Doctrine, as it's known, which is to officially, if there is the likelihood or it's known that an Israeli soldier has been taken captive and his or her whereabouts are known to destroy that whole area and even explicitly kill that soldier or those soldiers so that they do not give up information. This is a very similar doctrine that was followed on October 7. It seems, according to the reports I cited, and I recommend you check them out for yourself. They are meticulously cited and based on eyewitness testimony of Israelis who were on the ground during what happened on October 7. And what seems to have happened is that, again, the Israeli occupation forces went berserk and killed anyone and everyone in their sights. They fired at cars from Apache helicopters. They shelled homes of so-called Israeli citizens and did a lot of the killing, which is not to say that Hamas did not kill any civilians, 
that Hamas did not play a part in that carnage. But the so-called official story that was initially put out, there's a lot going on in terms of revising that to properly fit what actually happened. And this move of downgrading from 1,405 to 1,200 people in recent days on the part of the Zionist authorities is part of that. But again, do check out Electronic Intifada's work on this and the Gray Zone's work on this. Very important to understand what's going on here. Not least of which is because the stories that came out of the initial media campaign by the Zionist occupation entity, such as 40 beheaded babies, Hamas militants raping children. None of these have been proven to be true, but they've been injected into the public consciousness the world over. And they've stuck since then and have given, have helped give Israel the green light to carry out the genocide it's been carrying out or this latest stage of a 75 plus years genocide it's been carrying out. Continuing on with the Reuters article, amid the impasse, the UAE has grown increasingly frustrated with its most important security partner, Washington, which it believes is not exerting enough pressure to end the war, the four sources said. To which I can only respond, Washington, I don't think, has any interest in exerting pressure to end the war. Again, Reuters framing here like this started on October 7. And what is the UAE doing in terms of exerting pressure or enough pressure? Pot calling the kettle black, if ever there was an example. Anwar Gargash, diplomatic advisor to the UAE president, said this week that Washington needed to end the conflict swiftly and initiate a process to resolve the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian issue by addressing refugees, borders, and East Jerusalem, which should be occupied East Jerusalem. But again, this is Reuters, and they can't countenance the full reality of what we're talking about here. I will agree, though, that addressing refugees, borders, and occupied East Jerusalem needs to be a big part of this, as I said earlier, a major part of this. The UAE has publicly expressed concern that the war now risks igniting regional tensions and a new wave of extremism in the Middle East. And the UAE is very worried about this, particularly with regard to Ansarallah in Yemen and the fact that Ansarallah has been able to strike back at the UAE for the genocidal war that it is still waging on Yemen. And the UAE does not want any more volatility in terms of strikes 
from Ansarallah, retaliatory strikes from Ansarallah, because that is going to drive down investment that is going to hamper the UAE's big part in digital empire building. The UAE, I'll remind you, is a nominal member of BRICS, will become an official member of BRICS on the 1st of January next year. And this is what it is concerned about. And I think this speaks to the larger picture of what BRICS is all about. It is about a new form of capitalist empire building. It is not a, an alternative paradigm to US hegemony. We're talking about global empire into which entities like the UAE, Saudi, Israel, Russia, China, Brazil, India, which has very strong ties with Israel, were long ago integrated. Speaking on October 18 at the UN Security Council, where the UAE holds a rotating seat, Ambassador Lana Nusebe said that Abu Dhabi had sought via the Abraham Accords with Israel and the United States to deliver prosperity and security in a new Middle East through cooperation and peaceful coexistence. Quote, the indiscriminate damage visited upon the people of Gaza in pursuit of Israel's security risks, extinguishing that hope, unquote, she said. A senior European official told, told Reuters that Arab states had recognized now that it was not possible to build ties with Israel without addressing the Palestinian issue. Israel's foreign ministry decline, declined to comment for this story. Quick pause here. I'll be back right after this here on TNT Radio. Stay tuned. The European Central Bank is saying the quiet part out loud about central bank digital currency. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, admitted the EU's new central bank digital currency will be used to impose control. There will be control, you're right. You're completely right. Mm -hmm. We are considering whether for very small amounts, you know, anything that is around 300, 400 euros, we could have a mechanism where there is zero control. But that could be dangerous. The terrorist attacks on France uh, back uh, 10 years ago were entirely financed by those very small anonymous credit cards that you can recharge in total anonymity. Did you get that? You have to give up your freedom and use a central bank digital currency and no more cash because of a terrorist attack 10 years ago. What's the bigger threat? Tyrannical government trying to protect you or the terrorists themselves? Reject central bank digital currency. Reject the Great Reset. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. Natural disasters may seriously threaten civilization in the future. Yet the mainstream media peddles a pseudo-scientific man-made climate crisis. Natural climate change is a real threat, and historical records show that global cooling is the biggest killer, not global warming. 
calling may arise from astronomic phenomena, including solar cycles. And volcanic activity can play a major role too. For example, in 1815, Mount Tambora, in Indonesia, underwent the most deadly volcanic eruption in recorded history. Enormous amounts of dust and ash destroyed crops and vegetation, killed tens of thousands of people, and the eruption led to tsunamis. The following year, 1816, was known as the year without a summer, as abundant frost and ice continued all year. Newspapers of the day reported extensive crop failures in Europe and the United States. Perspective with Jesse Zerowell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome back to Perspective here on TNT Radio, where we are live 24-7. I am Jesse Zerowell and flying solo for the second day in a row. And I've been talking about the UAE and its very tepid response to the genocide in Palestine and why that is so. And this builds off of previous reports I've done on the UAE's metaverse strategy, the UAE being a hotbed for the development of a metaverse future, of a Web3-based future, of a blockchain-based future in concert with Israel, which is very big into the same space, and Saudi as well. Moving on with this Reuters article, which I've been going through and I think is quite illuminating in terms of setting the geopolitical and diplomatic groundwork for the larger picture of digital empire building in that region. The UAE continues to host an Israeli ambassador and there was no prospect of an end to diplomatic ties, which represented a longer-term strategic priority by Abu Dhabi, the sources said, these being the four sources, anonymous sources mentioned earlier. The accord was motivated in part by shared concerns over the threat posed by Iran, as well as a broader economic-driven realignment of Abu Dhabi's foreign policy. The UAE sees Iran as a threat to regional security, although in recent years it has taken diplomatic steps to de-escalate tensions. The key point to home in on here is economic-driven realignment of Abu Dhabi's foreign policy. Israel and the UAE have developed close economic and security ties in the three years since normalization, including defense cooperation. Israel supplied the UAE with air defense systems after missile and drone attacks on Abu Dhabi in early 2022 by the Iran-aligned Houthi movement in Yemen. That is Ansar Allah, the misnomer, the error, is calling them the Houthi movement, the Houthi family, quite large family in Yemen is but one part of the larger Ansar Allah resistance movement. And as far as being Iranian aligned, yes, there is a an at least nominal alliance between them, but Ansar Allah is largely, if not completely self-sufficient and 
has stated, especially recently, that it's not relying on Iran in really any capacity to carry out its resistance. But this is the narrative that continues. Reuters continues it. Al Jazeera continues it. They cannot countenance referring to Ansarallah as anything other than the Houthi rebels and Al Jazeera being based out of Qatar, where CENTCOM, US CENTCOM is also based, probably has something to do with that. So it's always very telling and irking, infuriating at some points to watch how the mouthpieces and commentators on Al Jazeera cannot properly refer to a legitimate resistance movement that is very much in alliance with the people of Palestine and the resistance they've long undertaken. And I think this deliberately serves a strategy of balkanizing these resistance movement as good as a lot of the coverage of the genocide on Gaza and the occupied West Bank and Palestine overall has been by Al Jazeera. There is still a need to keep these resistance movements fractured to, to enervate them, to paint the picture that there is no broad alliance between them when there very much is. And this comes back to the economic interests, the technological economic interests, and this huge push we're seeing to move life as we've known it, economic relations, all social relations into the so-called metaverse. And as I've said before, I don't think this is going to be possible. It's going to fail miserably, but vast sums of capital, capital are being pumped into this in the UAE, in Israel, in Saudi, in Qatar, and they're going for it. And that is what I think is of utmost importance to them and speaks to why they've been so constipated in their responses in the UN Security Council and elsewhere. And very similar things could be said for other parties as well, like Brazil. Again, very easy to say the things it does, but how does that translate into action? Well, the last I checked, according to Bloomberg, Brazil has been ramping up its exports of oil to Israel, thereby fueling the genocidal war machine of the Zionist occupation entity, another BRICS country for you. So judge that as you will. Bilateral trade between Israel and the UAE has exceeded $6 billion since 2020, according to Israel government data. Israeli tourists have thronged hotels, beaches, and shopping centers in the UAE, 
which is an OPEC oil power and a regional business hub. They, UAE, quote, they, UAE, have gains that they don't want to lose, unquote, said one of the sources, a senior diplomat based in the Middle East. And there you have it. Absolutely true. They have gains that they don't want to lose. Now, what are those gains? I've gone into them in detail. As I've said, I've touched on them here. They don't want to lose that. They're not willing to stick their necks totally out for their Arab brothers and sisters in Palestine. And frankly, we should expect nothing less from the likes of MBZ or MBS or the Emir of Qatar. These people live in the lap of luxury. These people, to quote this source, have gains they don't want to lose. Even prior to the October 7 attack, however, Abu Dhabi was concerned by the failure of Israel's right-wing government to curb expansion of Jewish settlements in the West Bank and repeated visits by right-wing religious Israelis to the compound that houses the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam. The compound, revered by Jews as a vestige of their two ancient temples, has long been a flashpoint of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What did Abu Dhabi do with its concern by the failure of Israel's right-wing government to curb expansion of Jewish settlements, which are actually Jewish colonies in the occupied West Bank? Again, no, no reference to the fact that the West Bank is occupied while acknowledging the settlements, but not acknowledging that the settlements, the colonies are illegal under international law. And what did Abu Dhabi do over its concern by the failure of Israel's right-wing government to curb repeated visits by right-wing religious Israelis? And they are much more than what right-wing religious Israelis. These are Zionist fanatics who have been documented spitting on Christians trying to worship in the area of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, obviously not at the mosque itself, but at Christian holy sites in the area. They've done nothing. They speak, they do nothing. And that is because they have gains they don't want to lose. And the same can be said for all of the major players, Russia, China, Brazil, India, particularly, which needs more examination. And I intend to examine India's role in this much more in the future. South Africa saying the right things, but what steps is it really taking to help anything? We have to go beyond words here. And we have to look at the possibility that these words are being put forth to give us the illusion of a new paradigm that is shifting away from a so-called unipolar world order headed by 
the U.S. Yes, there was once a time when there was a unipolar world order headed by the U.S., but that long ago became a global world order, a global empire in which the very same parties now under BRICS and the expanded BRICS who are claiming to offer a new paradigm were integrated. And they have no new paradigm to offer unless we're talking about digital empire building. None of four sources ruled out that the UAE could downgrade or sever its ties if the crisis escalated. Sources said that the displacement of the Palestinian population from the Gaza Strip or the West Bank into Egypt or Jordan was a red line for Abu Dhabi. Well, the displacement is currently underway and some of it has reached Egypt. Not Jordan yet, but it's underway in large part. Northern Gaza has been ethnically cleansed by and large, despite, although there are a few hospitals with patients and people seeking shelter hanging on, Al-Shifa being one of them currently under attack. People have made their way into Egypt. One could say voluntarily, or one could say that they didn't want to be pulverized by Israeli bombs. So they decided to leave Gaza for Egypt. So to me, the red line has already been crossed and it's going to be further crossed, unfortunately, I think. And Abu Dhabi will do nothing about it other than offer words because, again, it has interests it does not want to lose. James Dorsey, a senior fellow at the National University of Singapore, just it does not want to lose. James Dorsey, a senior fellow at the National University of Singapore, which I'll point out is a big, another big hub for fourth industrial revolution, technology development and implementation, the metaverse, web three, blockchain, perhaps just a coincidence that he's coming from there, but should be pointed out. Mr. Dorsey said the war in Gaza had discredited the notion that economic cooperation on its own could build a stable region. Quote, the new Middle East was being built on very fragile ground, unquote, he told Reuters. Well, an understatement, to say the least, from Mr. Dorsey. Israel has rejected international calls for an immediate ceasefire. Netanyahu has said there would be no halt to its attack until hostages are returned. His government has pledged to destroy Hamas, which is classified as a terrorist organization by the United States and the European Union. While criticizing Israel's conduct of the war, Abu Dhabi has also condemned Hamas for its attack. The UAE sees the Palestinian militant group and other Islamists as a threat to the stability of the Middle East and beyond. Quote, Hamas is not their favorite organization, unquote, said one of the sources. Quote, it is Muslim Brotherhood after all, unquote. 
So some truth there. The UAE has led the charge against Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, the, older, the oldest Islamist organization in the Arab world. It helped Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi topple Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood in a military takeover in 2013 that followed mass protests against his rule. The UAE provided Egypt with billions of dollars in support following Morsi's ouster. In terms of UAE support for Egypt, I also want to point out that according to Bloomberg in late September, Egypt, which is currently in dire economic straits, signed a local currency swap worth $1.4 billion with the UAE. And the deal comes as Egypt seeks to ease dire foreign currency crisis and calls by investors for Egypt to again devalue the pound. So the UAE, Egypt, as I've mentioned before, is very much over a barrel, and that includes with the UAE as well. Israel, too, on which it relies for much of its natural gas supply. Abu Dhabi also abandoned Sudan's former Islamist president, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, in 2019, ultimately leading to the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood's grip on power there after it had dominated Sudanese politics for decades. The UAE had previously pumped billions of dollars into Sudan's coffers. So that is the state of affairs, according to Reuters. Now, if we go to Hebrew language media, which I recommend doing because it's much more candid than Israeli sources offered to us in English. If we go to Hebrew media language at the Times of Israel, for example, and a recent blog post published by Ksenia Svetlova titled Saudi Arabia's message despite the war normalization with Israel is still on the agenda. We can get a confirmation of sorts of what Reuters is reporting. And despite the provenance of this blog post and the obvious biases, to put it mildly embedded in it, there's a lot of truth to it. And the candidness is important in the truth it reveals. So this was published last week and ahead of the summit that took place, the Arab League OIC summit that took place over the weekend. Next week, Saudi Arabia will hold a summit in Riyadh regarding the situation in Gaza and call for a ceasefire. Saudi Arabia is actually promoting itself to the status of the eldest sister in the family of Arab nations. With no choice, she takes the responsibility and does the required thing, demands the world, that is the US and Israel, to stop the fire in Gaza. Iran is also expected to participate in this summit, 
although in the Gulf there are growing voices accusing Tehran of the deterioration of the security situation in the region and of striving against normalization agreements between the Arab world and Israel. At the same time, this week, Saudi Investments Minister Khaled Al-Falah clarified that the normalization process with Israel is still on the table. And just like it was before the war, the Saudis are trying, are tying the knot between him and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So a link here to a Bloomberg article, which will come up any moment. Saudi minister says Israel talks hinge on Palestinian question. This was published on the 8th as well, I believe the same day as this blog post. And the Saudi minister was speaking at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, where leaders discussed China, AI, and the New World Order. Normalization, quote, remains on the table, unquote, investment minister says. Saudi Arabia seeking, quote, peace through peaceful discussions, unquote, whatever that means. Going back to the Hebrew language Times of Israel blog post. This is a very strong and significant statement coming from investments minister Khaled al-Falah. This is, while Hamas is trying to establish facts on the ground and is proud that it has changed the architecture of relations in the region and made everyone engage with the Palestinian issue, the Saudis say the opposite. We always knew that we must engage with Palestinians. The war in Gaza does not change the world order here. We will be interested in normalization with Israel even the day after. According to the Jewish American businessman, Bruce Gerfine, who has been working and living in the Gulf for many years, the Saudis are very focused on the development of Vision 2030, which was set by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and this is also evident in the Hulin talks. Quote, people are less discussing the war in Gaza and the Palestinian issue and more about the accelerated development of their country in the Saudi 2030 vision. The same is true in the United Arab Emirates. In two weeks, the United Nations Climate Summit, COP28, will be held there, and it is very interesting and important to them. By the way, flights from Dubai to Israel continue as usual. It may be the destination with the most flights at the moment, unquote, says Gerfine. It should not be concluded, however, it should not be concluded that the Saudis and Emiratis do not care about the Palestinians. However, while they are very busy with diplomatic activity regarding Gaza and pouring humanitarian aid into the Strip, these countries also do not forget about their national interest, development, economy, and peaceful relations with the nations of the region, to which I would add in service of the fourth industrial revolution. That is it for me for today. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you very much for tuning in here on TNT Radio and take care.